0: The reading is from uh, Haggai, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the twenty-first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Jerubabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them... Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Jerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. Says the Lord Almighty. (laughs) The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks so much for reading for us. Let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? And ask for the Lord's help. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering together. Thank you for the freedom we have in our land to do it. Thank you for the joy of being amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for time together and time in your word. We pray that you would speak to us now, that you'd help us to listen well, and that you'd help us to respond in a way that's appropriate to what your word says. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hang on, chapter 2, and we're on page 9 of the uh, booklets that you have been given. We thought in the first session of kingdom building, temple building, church building, and how God is honoured and pleased as we go about obediently putting his pleasure and honour above our own comfort and priorities And as we go about working for him, so he is working for us. But why do today what you can do tomorrow? Put it off. Well, it sounds like the name of a Russian general, but it is actually some people's personality trait. (laughs) Well, for those who've just got it, well done. Now, some people embody, don't they, kind of a Spanish man-yana. In children's Mr. Men's books, they'd be Mr. Procrastinate. And that certainly was the situation we found there at the beginning of Haggai chapter 1. The people had stopped working. But now, by the end of the chapter, they are back at work. The temple is being built. And in this session, we're going to think particularly about what will encourage us to stick at the task, so that we don't put it off so that we don't procrastinate, so that we're not manana, that we actually do today what God has called us to do. And the chapter opens with a discouraging comparison. So the building work has started, the JCBs are on site, the surveyors have got their hard hats and yellow bibs on, the architects are looking over the plans. And then verse 1, three and a half weeks into phase 2 of the project, so on the 21st day of the 7th month, Haggai speaks again. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. I've been practicing that all week. And three questions Haggai is to ask the people. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? First, identify all those who can remember the first temple that was built by King Solomon. You can read all about the building of that first temple in 1 Kings and chapters 5 through 8. A brilliant temple that Solomon built that Nebuchadnezzar had reduced to rubble with barely one stone on another. But Haggai is now to find out who can remember that first temple. Well, the exile had lasted 70 years. So anyone over, what, mid to late 70s is likely to remember the temple that, uh, that Solomon built. There are people in the commentators, I think they're just being ageist, who said there would be very few. But actually, I reckon there would be a considerable number. Indeed, Ezra chapter 4 tells us that when the foundations were laid for the second temple, the grey tops, the oldies which you don't have any of uh, here. I thought it was lovely the way Andre spoke of himself as an elder. When he said, clearly a younger. <laughs> he may be an elder younger. And then over coffee, it was a great joy. I had a great fun. Uh, Simon Hallett, who I knew from 20 years ago. And he is an elder elder. Yeah, he's gen- he's, he's-
2: <laughs> That's
1: right, Simon, isn't it, bro? An elder elder. The only one of... Uh, is he- you the oldest person here, Simon?
2: <laughs> yeah...
1: No, I think I am. I think I might be older than you. <laughs> there, are people who, there, were, there were people who were in the commentators saying there wouldn't be many, but Ezra tells us that there were people who could remember the first temple built by Solomon. And in fact, my experience is that very older people can remember what happened a long time ago better than they can remember what happened that morning. When joes that's my wife, when her dad celebrated his 90th birthday, he threw a party. And at his party, uh, he decided to make a speech after we'd had lunch together. And he'd been a farmer all his life, and so he began by telling us how he remembered when he was four, the first diesel engine tractor arriving on his farm. And he started to describe this tractor in meticulous detail. Joe and I looked at each other and thought, if we go through his life at this pace, we're going to be here for another 90 years. Fortunately, he didn't, because he could remember what had happened over 80 years ago. He just couldn't remember what he'd had for breakfast that morning. That's how it goes with uh, us older folk. So identify who can remember this former house. Second question, how does it look to you now? But notice, the third question is the answer to the second. Does it not seem to you like nothing? And it must have done. Because the second temple that these people were building here was considerably smaller than the temple that Solomon had built. It wasn't as impressive to look at. It wasn't architecturally as fine as Solomon's was. And the danger, which we know from Ezra chapter 4, is that people look back to Solomon's temple and compare the present to the past, see the past more glorious than the present, and be discouraged by it. We're told in Ezra 4 that people, Ezra 4 chap, chapter 4, verses 1 to four 5, that the people wept. The old old is wept when they saw the second temple being built because it wasn't as big as the first one. wasn't as impressive as the first one. And the problem is that sometimes you can look back to the past and compare the present with the past and be discouraged by it. Now we'll see in a moment, Haggai does not want the people to stop work by looking back and being discouraged. Because a glorious past can be discouraging. Have you noticed that some people's pastime is pastime? Have you come across people who look back to a bygone era and tell you that things aren't as good now as they used to be? So at the beginning of this year, BBC2 on Saturday evenings started showing yet again Dad's Army. Dad's Army that was made in 1968, the first series, and here they're showing it again 45 years later. And it led the uh, commentator in the Times to say they don't make sitcoms like they used to. Now I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a pretty discouraging thing if you're writing a sitcom in the present to read that review. They don't make sitcoms like they used to. But people do that and can do that spiritually too. They look at a past generation and say, wasn't the past great and the present doesn't look quite as good? I remember a few weeks ago preaching at a church in in Kent. It was a huge barn of a place, must have seated 600, I suppose. And there were about a hundred there the day I was preaching. I don't think it's because I was preaching that there were only a hundred. I think that was their settled number of people who tended to go on a Sunday. And some of the coffins, uh, grey tops, um, we must call them coffin dodgers, must we? Some, some of the some of the grey tops came up to me afterwards and said. We remember when this church was full on Sundays. We remember when we had a Sunday school, and I think they meant about three million. And and the way they said it was just so discouraging for all of those who were working flat out in the the present. When I grew up uh, as a teenager, I was taken along to church, as I said last night, and I went to a youth group that had a hundred regularly on a Saturday and Sunday night. 60 at Bible study on a Wednesday. The church I go to that my kids are involved in, in the youth work. If they get 15 to the youth group, it's a good night. And it's no good me saying, in my day, you know, we had 100 on a Saturday night. You've only got 15. If I say that too often, it'll be very discouraging for the leaders who are working their socks off amongst our young people. A discouraging comparison. You can look back, and we who are a bit older, we must beware of looking back and making a comparison and allowing it to discourage. But it's not looking back that's wrong, it's what you look back to. And so you can see at the strengthening presence in verses 4 and 5. So, at verse 4, be... Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you of the land, declares the Lord. And work. And at the end of verse 5, do not fear. Be at work, don't be afraid. Be at work, don't be afraid. And why? What is going to motivate these people to stick at the task? Well, it's what we saw in the first session being repeated there in the middle. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am with you, and this is what I covenanted. This is the binding agreement that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt. So when you came out of slavery in Egypt, Abraham's family, the 608,000 men over age 20, and plus the wives and the children, so a vast number, come out of slavery in Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and God says, I will be with you. And God makes a binding agreement to be with his people through the ups and downs, through the judgments of even the exile. I am with you. So yes, the judgments of the exile came, but Daniel and Chandrach, Meshach and Abednego would be able to testify in exile that God was with them. I am with you. God is with his people. Now, after they returned from exile, things were a lot less impressive than they had been, say, in Solomon's day. In the glory days of the Old Testament. Where in Solomon's day it looked superficially as if all the promises were being fulfilled. And things now? Well, when they returned from exile, Jerusalem lay in rubble. And in the book of Nehemiah you read how after the building of the temple, they will rebuild a city wall. The temple is in ruins... There are enemies all around them in the land. They are ruled by a Persian king. Notice the Rabbabel is only a governor. So the promises of God, well, they hardly look as if they're being fulfilled. Yes, compare now with the past, and now looks pretty puny. Compare now with the past, and you might be tempted to think, God's not with us. God's not in it. But here... Haggai is reminding the people that however things look visually, however things look experientially, God has made an, un- an unbreakable promise, a binding agreement, a covenant to the people here. I am with you and my spirit remains among you. It's not looking back that's wrong, it's what you look back to. And Haggai is calling the people to look back but the promise of God. And friends, well, we don't look back, do we, to being liberated from slavery in Egypt. We look back to what that was but a shadow of in the Old Testament. We look back to the fulfilment of it in the New Testament. How Jesus has come and has liberated us, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And as he does that, has he, as we saw earlier, not made a binding agreement with us I am with you and my spirit is among you. The two being the same reality. I am with you, my spirit is among you. And Jesus has made that as an unbreakable binding contract with us to strengthen us for the work that he has called us to do. A strengthening presence. Let me ask you whether you believe that Jesus is with us in the work of temple building. Let me ask you whether you believe that the Spirit is amongst us. Now, intellectually, you're all nodding your heads. Not physically nodding your heads, many of you, but there you go. But intellectually, you're nodding your heads, because you know that's theologically the right answer. But let me ask you as you go about temple building, as you're thinking about that list of people to invite for those dinners. Let me ask you whether you actually do believe in your heart that God is so committed to the project that he's on about that he is with you and empowering you. It's a wonderful thing. Of myself, I am pretty lousy at evangelism. I need all the help I can get. When I uh, worked in London, I remember one Wednesday afternoon going for my haircut. You know how it is when you get, have your haircut. the hairdresser engages you in conversation. Hairdressers are one step better than dentists. Dentists engage you in conversation while they've got both their hands in your mouth and you've got no hope of answering them. I don't know how they teach that at dental school. Well, hairdressers also engage you with conversation. This girl must have been about 22 I suppose and she was clipping away at my hair and she said, are you not working today? I said, oh I work flexi-time. There was an opportunity actually to say something about what I did to her but I bottled it. She said, where do you work? Second opportunity. I said, I work on a little road uh, just off the A10, just off Bishopsgate.
0: It was true.
1: She said, What do you do? <laughs> Third opportunity. I said, Oh, I actually, I teach um, students and young professionals mainly. Third opportunity. What do you teach them? <laughs> It is at this moment that I recognise that this is an evangelistic opportunity. (laughs) And at this moment I pray an S-U-S prayer. Do you pray those? Send up a Swifty. And I said, Lord God, you have promised to be with me. You've promised to empower me. Will you help me now to do the work that I ought to do? And so I just said to her, look, let me come clean. The Church of England pays people like me to explain to people like you why you should become a Christian she said are you any good at it
2: <laughs> you
1: can work the answer of that one out for yourself but but God has promised do you pray those S.U.S. prayers do you look back and say thank you Lord that you have promised to be with me you've promised to help me Will you now do that? So looking back, look, look back to the promise uh, of God. But then look forward, as we flip over the page, to a certain future. You see, when the people return from exile, nothing of the great promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, nothing of the great promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, do you know those two chapters? They outline the promises that God makes Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7. The promises God makes about what he's going to do. When they return from exile, little of those promises have yet been fulfilled. And so, notice Haggai now speaks in verses 6 to 9 into the future. And he's reassuring the people that the promises that God has made are not off track, they just still lie in the future. And three particular promises are being made in verses 6 to 9. First, a universal people will be established. I think that's what verse 6 and 7 are about. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now that little phrase, once more, alerts you to what? God's already done it once. And the great earthquake or the great shaking of the earth that has already happened, happened at Mount Sinai when God created Israel as his covenant nation, as his covenant people, when he calls them for the first time a holy nation. Once more, it means that God is once again going to do an earthquake. And I think it means that once more he's going to bring about a covenant, obviously a new covenant we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament. And when he does that, the desired of all nations will come. Now that little phrase, the desired of all nations will come, is a tricky phrase in the original Hebrew, and if you've got an ESV in front of you, it almost certainly will say the treasures of the nations will come. Now, the desired of the nations, some people have thought, as a reference to the Lord Jesus will come. And certainly Charles Wesley understood it in that way. I don't know whether you know that uh, the Wesley's hymns have all got many more verses than we ever sing. And can it be he's got 15 verses or something, but we'd never sing them all because, you know, we'd be here all morning if we did. The heart the herald angels sing has got many more verses than we ever sing at Christmas time. And one of the verses begins, Come desired of nations, come. And Wesley saw the desire of nations as a reference to Jesus. But the little phrase will come in the Hebrew is in the plural. And so the ESV is almost certainly fair to translate it the treasures, plural. And therefore most likely to be an indication that God is going to bring the treasures, that is those he has as his people from all the nations and they will come. Which of course is... The promise that God has made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember the promise? Where God unconditionally says that through Abraham and through His descendants all nations of the earth would be blessed, Which is why we're so concerned about places like France, because all the nations. And here Haggai is telling the people that the promise of God that was promised to Abraham hasn't yet been fulfilled but will be fulfilled. There will be a universal, from all nations, covenant people. Now when do you think that promise gets its fulfilment? Well, it's a sense in which it begins at the coming of Jesus, doesn't it? Do you remember in Matthew twenty six, when Jesus dies on the cross, there is an earthquake and many are raised to life. And you remember at the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 verse 5, Luke tells us that there were people from every nation on earth, from all nations, who are gathered in Jerusalem. And as Peter preaches the gospel, and as they're speaking in tongues of the nations that are gathered there, So we see the beginnings of the undoing of what happened at the Tower of Babel. We see the beginnings of all nations coming in. This promise begins its fulfilment at the first coming of Jesus and it's being fulfilled now as the Gospel goes out to all the nations. But of course it hasn't yet had its final fulfilment because... Well, the writer of Hebrews quotes verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 12, and says we're still awaiting the shaking. In other words, at the end of time, there will be a final shaking, and at that moment, as... I think it was Ruth quoted from Revelation 7 in her interview. It's at that time, on the last day, that there will be people gathered from every nation, tribe and tongue, gathered around the throne, singing, I'm not sure it'll be in French, but singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. It started to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled, as it's being fulfilled in the now. So, Haggai is encouraging the people to stick at the work because of the future promise of God. And then the second promise that comes there is of a glorious temple that's finished. So, verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Now, the writer of Haggai can't actually say that this second temple is going to be more glorious than the one Solomon built, but rather what it shadows is more glorious than the one Solomon built. So this second temple was destroyed, and the third temple that Jesus went into was destroyed in AD 70, but the temple that Jesus is building is far more glorious than the temple that Solomon built. So the people are looking back to Solomon's temple and thinking it's not as good as it was. Well Haggai says they look forward, and what God is doing is going to be far better than anything that has ever been. And of course that temple well it starts to be built, doesn't it? As Jesus says in John chapter two, I will destroy this temple and three days later I will build another which then John adds the editorial comment, they didn't know that he was speaking about his death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection starts the building of a temple that's far better than anything Solomon knocked up. It's a glorious temple. And on the last day, when we are gathered around the throne, that will be the temple. Far better than any physical building in Jerusalem. This will be the building that's in the new Jerusalem where we will be there and third it will be a peaceful home a peaceful home because notice verse 9 and in this place I will grant shalom I will grant peace peace that's bigger than we often use the word we often think of peace as just being the absence of hostility but shalom is a much bigger word than that it means not just the absence of hostility it means the creation of Perfectly right relationships. It's a, it's a promise of going back to how Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. You remember how Genesis 2.25 describes them as being naked and without shame. That doesn't just mean they were nude and didn't have any clothes on. It means that they got nothing to cover up with each other. It's a lovely picture, description of a perfect relationship of shalom. And that's what one day... Haggai is saying God will bring about. And when is that shalom brought about? Well again, it's at the beginning of the coming of Jesus, as Jesus dies on the cross, and as we are justified, that is that we are given the gift of being righteous. How does Paul put it in Romans 5.1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have that was the interactive bit, didn't work that well, let me try it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are in shalom with the creator of the universe, who we were once hostile towards. We are now at peace with him. And we enjoy some measure of peace amongst us, don't we? We're meant to. But your church is not perfectly at peace just yet. What I've experienced seems to be lovely and you all seem to be lovely uh, people and I haven't seen many people storming out with tantrums and uh, I haven't seen any fights yet, I haven't seen any of you hitting each other. You seem to be enjoying a measure of peace but would you be prepared to accept that you are not totally yet at shalom with one another? Are there any kind of petty niggles that go on in your church? Oh come on, are there any petty niggles? Is there ever any evidence that you are not perfectly at Shalom? Are you still covering up who you are before each other and pretending you're someone that you're not? Yes, we're all doing it because we're not yet where we're going to be. But when we get gathered around the throne, people from every nation, tribe and tongue will be wearing white robes, which is a New Testament equivalent to being naked and feeling no shame. It's a picture of perfect purity and perfect relationship one with another. Haggai is saying to the people, God, look back, has promised to be with you, and God, look forward, is promising to bring about what he has always purposed. It will happen. It just lies in the future. So hang on in there and do the work that God has called you to which for them is physical temple building and for us is spiritual temple building hang on in there and do the work I don't know whether you know that in America now in scientific experimentation they're no longer using rats and they're using lawyers instead (laughs) there are two reasons for that first because in America there are more lawyers than rats (laughs) And secondly, because there are some things even rats won't do. <laughs> uh, apologies if you're American or a lawyer. <laughs> Cheap shot. But have you ever have you ever seen have you ever seen those kind of mazes where they put a lump of cheese at the mi- at the middle? And the rat enters the maze and then has to find its way to the reward of the cheese at the centre. And it scurries this way, that, turning this way and that, going down blind alley and turning around, going up another blind alley and eventually finding its way to the cheese, the reward at the centre. Do you know some Christians go through their Christian lives as if they're rats in a maze? We don't need to. We don't need to go through our Christian lives turning this way and that and this way and that. God has told us where he's taking everything. And we are more privileged than the people of Haggai's day because we live this side of the first coming of Jesus. So we've begun to see these promises and their fulfilment. No, not yet finally fulfilled, but we've seen the beginnings of their fulfilment. Paul in the beginning of Ephesians says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he lists the blessings that God has in the heavenly realms blessed us with. He's given us every blessing in the heavenly realms and one of the blessings that Paul has in Ephesians 1.10 is to tell us where everything is going in the future. Now if you know where God is taking everything in the future, he's taking everything in the future to have a universal, international, covenant people who will be his, who will be gathered around his throne. That that is the temple God is building and that in that temple we will enjoy perfect shalom and peace and relationship. Do you not think it's a no-brainer to order your life in the direction of where God is taking everything? Or do you think it would be sensible to order your life in a different direction to where all that God is taking everything? I think it's a remarkably helpful thing For us to think about in terms of where we order our priorities. You see, if God is taking everything in that direction, don't you think I ought to be ordering my praying in that kind of direction? If that's where God's going, doesn't it make sense to order my prayer life in that kind of direction? It makes my praying, or should, be on an altogether bigger scale, and so often much of my praying is. It was Don Carson's call to spiritual reformation, I don't know whether you've ever come across that book, that alerted me to the fact that Paul's prayers in the New Testament are of a whole bigger direction. They are in that direction than so much of my praying is, which is little more often than, Lord, help my bunion in my toe. Which in the big scheme of things, yes, my Heavenly Father's concerned with everything, don't mishear me, but in the big scheme of things, Make my praying in line with where God's taking everything. Is my giving sorted out? In line with where God's taking everything. Am I investing with my money for where God's taking all of human history? Yet so often I catch myself and realise that actually a lot of my money I fritter. Don't mishear me, it's not wrong to use our money to buy things and enjoy things. I'm not trying to lay a big guilt trip on anyone. I'm just wanting to say that knowing the future is so helpful when I do my annual giving review. Joe and I do that in, December, in January each year. Do you do annual giving review as either a church or as individuals? It's worth doing. Joe and I, Joe and I go out for dinner uh, in early January together and we just look at certain areas of life, one of which is our giving, and think... Yeah. What are we giving our money to at the moment? Is it the right? Is it pushing in this kind of direction? We think about our time. I'll probably buy a book this weekend, and it'll probably tell me about my meals. Because I hadn't thought about quite how we use our meals. Uh, we do have people for meals, but
2: do but
1: you get the point? Knowing the future is just such a helpful thing to reorientate the priorities of the present. Knowing the future is in part what is calling the people in the 6th century BC to be at work and not be at fear. Don't look back and make comparisons with the past. It nearly always isn't helpful. If you're going to look back to the past, look back to the promise that Jesus has made, I am with you and my spirit remains among you. And believe it. And then look forward to where God is taking all of human history and allow that to be the thing that orders your priorities. So that where God is going, your priorities are going too. Why don't we pray that that will be the case. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you Have promised to be with us, to empower us. Thank you that when we're at work, you're at work with us. Thank you for being able to be co partners with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have revealed the future. Thank you that your promises restated here to the people of the 6th century BC are what you are doing. Thank you that we can see some measure of their fulfilment through the coming of Jesus. Thank you that they will be finally fulfilled when he returns and help us to be ordering our lives in line with that. And we want that for Jesus' sake.
2: Amen.